Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This, this section is a, is a mixed bag um, where... It's about women's role, but a lot of about male superiority, and also some myths about women. And here I included also, even though we're doing Sephardic literature, I wanted to include some entries from non-Sephardic literature, so you will see that this kind of uh, um, approach towards women and the negative myths around them is not uh, is not part of only of the Sephardic world. It just was. A, a, a probably at the time a global phenomenon, um, and this is from the book called Sefer Hasidim, written by Rabbi Yehuda Hasid in Germany. Uh, he lived in the 12th century, uh, 1140 to 1217, and um, is part of the of this of the group known as Hasidei Ashkenazi the uh, the pious men of of Germany. Uh, they were. Uh, um, steeped in mysticism, in the very particular kind of mysticism uh, of, uh, of that region and time. Um, I think Rabitari, you took the course on Kabbalah that we studied, we spoke about that, right? No, you didn't do Kabbalah with me. Uh, but anyway, in, in, my, uh, in my podcast, you, you have this Kabbalah 101 where we cover the Hasidei Ashkenaz. To me, the amazing thing about this book is that it has been accepted into the mainstream. The, the group of Hasid Ashkenaz was sort of an esoteric sect, um, but, and the, the Sefer Hasidim is the less esoteric of their, of their text. A lot of what they wrote was the commentaries on the Sidur and uh, Kabbalistic works that involve many uh, very intricate interpretations uh, that has, have to do also with counting words and uh, and numeric values and uh, etc. And they also continue the tradition of the belief in what is called Kavod Nivra, that there is some kind of intermediary between us and God, and that intermediary has dimensions. It's a very complex system, not not really for the public. And Sefer Hasidim originally was not written for the public; it was written for um, for the, that that narrow circle, and it it got out. And it became part of the of the mainstream halacha literature, and it's amazing to me that serious books of halacha later on quote what the Sefer Hasidim writes as something which is binding. And uh, I'll give you one. Here's one example that had to do with the way people looked at women at the time. But you should know that in Sefer Hasidim you could find many of the local German myths. They speak. They believed in werewolves. In ghosts, in uh, in spirits of the forest that kidnap children, uh, I mean all the things that you would associate with the Grimm brothers and uh, Gothe and uh, etc. You could find a Sefer Hasidim, uh, and here this is from chapter four eleven in uh, in Sefer Hasidim, the edition of Rabbi Bar Galiot. Uh, he says this: Nashim ayu hashudot al sheochlot yeladim. There were there was a rumor that there were some women in the community. Were eating children, 
Okay, that's like, you know, Grimm Brothers, Hansel and Gretel, this is uh, Hansel and Gretel, this is the uh, precursor, right, from the 12th century. Uh, and, and it's obvious, this is, this is a complete nonsense. But people believed in it. Some of the disciples said, Ben Soeru Moreh, so some of the disciples arrived at the conclusion, they said, just as a, uh, the Torah says about the rebellious son that is going to be put to death, and the rabbis asked the question, how, why would you put that, that, that child to death? He didn't do anything wrong. He just is a glutton, yes. He's a drunkard, yes. But those are not, uh, transgression that, that uh, sanctioned the death penalty. And the answers of the rabbis in the Talmud is, ben because we know that eventually he will take that path and will become a robber or a murderer. Uh, that's why we strike first and we kill him before he, uh, he gets to that, you know, to those extremes. Um, in parentheses, I have to say that it's hard to digest that, and that's why the rabbis in the, in the Talmud already said that this has never happened, at least according to one opinion. There's an interesting debate in the Talmud. One rabbi says there was never a case of a rebellious son who, who was executed, and another says, oh, there was, and I saw the grave, and I even sat there to eat, or something like that. Uh, which, one of them must be lying. It's, like, it's impossible that the grave existed and, or not. And I think that the interpretation, um, the correct interpretation of the Serbeso Moe uh, is that offered by Rabbi Sassoon, Rabbi Staman Sassoon, the son of uh, Farha Sassoon that we've spoken about before. And in his, in his commentary on the Torah, he explains that the, the whole uh, story of the rebellious son was a way for the court system to identify abusive parents. Because think about it, who what kind of parents would want to bring their child to court and say, execute him because he's disobedient? Only abusive parents. And, and unfortunately, in the last couple of weeks, there was a slew of, 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 uh, of terrible news in America about abusive parents uh, to toddlers, to children. It's just unbelievable. So what the Torah does, so I'm just saying, don't think that it belongs to primitive societies. It happens today. What the Torah does with the story of the rebellious son, it, uh, but it was, of course, it, it could not have been known to the parents. It was only known to court. The judges knew that when they have a couple coming with their son and saying, uh, he, here is a rebellious son, punish him, they say, okay, we'll punish him. They will work out uh, a way to acquit him based on a technicality, and later on we'll take custody of this child and save him from his abusive parents. However, unfortunately, that was also forgotten sometime, you know, somewhere along the process of transmitting halakha. And here we have those students in 12th century Germany who uh, basically are thinking along the lines of minority report. They say, um, just as the rebellious son is executed for stealing or eating um, excessively, so also those women, because they are suspected, let's kill them before they go and do some, before they, they, they kill more people. But they had, no, they had no evidence, and of course this is a mythical, fantastic, uh, 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 phantasmagoric uh, concept that, that, that was definitely not right. 
Amar lahem the rabbi stopped them. And he answered the way he convinced them to not uh, uh, persecute these women. Basically, what they want to do is witch hunt. And we all know of the of the witch hunt in uh, you know before Salem, those things were going on in Europe. Um, and basically, when once a woman was was more women than men, women were always the ones who were uh, blamed in uh, witchcraft. And whenever someone was suspected, there was no way out, if not for the uh, sometimes the mercy of the executioner. That we know of cases that. Uh, uh, they pretended to kill or to torture the person and would send them away. Uh, but other than that, there was a, um, a dead end. It was, there was no way to get out of it because the, the test would be, for example, bind someone and bind the, that person who was accused in witchcraft and throw them into the water. If they drown, they're innocent and their, uh, uh, their name is, uh, is cleared of guilt. If they float... That means that they are witches, and then they put to death. Same thing with the fire. So there was no. It was a very a terrible time. Uh, but the rabbi here stops the the students from uh, going after these women, and he says, "Yesh nashim hamosim, And that is not a, this phrase is, uh, is not clear. Some some women do it uh, as if they are forced to do it. Maybe he means that they are possessed by demons and they're they're not in their right mind. and some of them are witches. Announce in the synagogue when those women are there. Uh, that they must know. If any of the children in the community will be harmed, the the teeth of these women will be sharpened with the stones that are around the well, and those who are guilty will die at that time. I tried to figure out what is the uh, what is that process. I, I searched the literature to try and figure out whether there was some kind of a trial like that, or that that story. I mean, the story seems to be sort of made up, but the the, the idea that it is recorded in a book. That carried some uh, some weight within the the religious community is uh, is mind boggling. But I don't know exactly what they meant by uh, him They will sharpen their teeth. Maybe to me that the one thing is like this: some kind of test, like you know, throwing the woman into the water with fire. Yes, Zatzipo. Um, could you just repeat the name of the this like school of thought? Oh yes, Hasidei Ashkenaz. Hasidei Ashkenaz, or the the pious men of Germany. Hasid, okay, thank yes. Um, from more or less the same period, but um, and someone who was in touch with Hasidei Ashkenaz, but was more a halacha person, is Rabbi uh, Yitzhak of Vienna. In his book Or Zarua, he speaks about the uh, the nida. And that is, we'll see also in 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 uh, Sephardic uh, in the works of Sephardic authors, more or less everybody thought the same way, but the uh, the negative attitude toward the nida uh, was uh, was heavily influenced by the German culture. Uh, Professor Daniel Sperber wrote about that, and the also the uh, the manuscript and the and the uh, um, 
when you look at the, at the literature and, and you try to look at where did it come from, it emerges in Germany at around that time, and that's part of the myths of the uh, of the German tribes who believed that a woman uh, at, during the time of her period is uh, is deadly. I mean, it just when she looks at things, though, you know, flowers will wither, and men will die, uh, things will be poisoned, food will be rotten, etc., etc. Uh, so now, the, um, the no in following biblical law, the Torah says that uh, that only you know, sexual relationships are forbidden during the nida. In later literature, in the in the time of Zamud, they expanded it to uh, to affectionate touch. The uh, uh, and there in Ozawa they go even further. It says Anida vayoledet vamapelet asurot lebaalehen liga behad meevaria Anida, a woman who gave birth and one who had a miscarriage cannot be touched by the husband. Um, and that you know, think of the uh, the yoledet a woman after birth. Uh, or a woman who had a miscarriage, and what a situation she is, she cannot touch, uh, or be touched by her husband. But then he adds this, B'Shem HaChavei Narvona, in the names of the scholars of Narvon, which is in uh, uh, in Provence, Katav Mori Avi Izri, my master, the author of the book Avi Izri, wrote, She'osrim la'nida le'echol al ba'ala, that a woman who is nida cannot eat on the same table as her husband. That that is a there is an excessive a law of uh, of separation that was not part of the Talmudic literature. Yes, uh, when when question. yeah no no when we talk I mean we'll touch on that when of course when we talk about nida then um, as I said the uh, the push towards being more strict in the halachot of nida started with the women and then the rabbis adopted that. If we want to. Uh, you know, to know how exactly were the relationships in the family, there are there are studies on that. Uh, Elisheva Baumgarten uh, wrote a very important book about family, uh, family and childbearing and parenting in Ashkenaz in Germany in medieval times. Um, the 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 uh, the marriage was not usually arranged by a shiduch. And, uh, and because there were small communities, I mean, everybody knew each other. It was not the shidduch of the matchmaking, like of someone that you completely you don't know uh, totally. But um, when you know, when when thinking of the daily life and the relationship between a husband and wife, I think that that it would split along the sa- along the same lines that you have today, and it really depends on on the people. Meaning, there is there is always the cultural factor. And then there is the personal, the personal factor. I mean, you, we live today in a society where we want to believe that there is understanding of equality and more respect towards women, and men are uh, are prompted to be, you know, left brain uh, thinkers, etc. And uh, and when uh, when their wife is when the wife is pregnant. They go around and you know wearing this jacket to do to feel the weight and all that. Uh, but even among these men, I mean, we have better education now for men to understand the you know to be more sensitive and more emotional. But um, but at the I think at the individual level, there will be those who who do it just because it's a, it's a social norm, right? Because of peer pressure, 
And those who would, even if they don't live in a society where this is the norm, would feel that, that they should be more respectful towards women. So it's a long process of education. I don't think they were there yet. I think that there is still that, uh, that air of, uh, of superiority and from men to women and the feeling, yeah? Sorry, it just seems like a lot of women were just expected to be complicit in their own abuse. And like we brought up the element of like abuse of children. And I'm just wondering sort of about how that must have been and what the women's relationships with each other must have been to sort of support each other and get through this. Right. So, so they were, they were abusive husbands. They were always, they were always uh, abusive husbands. And I say we have that today as well. Uh, and even when when the abuse is not physical, there's there's emotional uh, verbal abuse that is uh, as bad or sometimes worse. Depends on the situation. Um, the rabbis the rabbis should have been responsible of taking care of it, and we'll see how they responded to it. Uh, whether uh, this is more in the response, we have we have uh, uh, texts that deal with that. But hmm, when we think of uh, of the daily life, right? I would be, I would believe that uh, in a in a uh, in communities where people were you know living closer together, sort of as in a clan, that was less common because the women were able to form a bond with each other and support each other, and um, and also remember that we are we're looking here at. Uh, things that were put down and were written. It's not, it doesn't mean that that was the behavior in the general society. Those, those, are, the, those are the outliers. Those are the outliers. Um, the, the, uh, the, how would I call it? The, the uh, detachment for women or the, the, the rejection of women. Uh, here is associated in Germany, especially with the, with the uh, idea of impurity or of danger, but it doesn't mean that they were uh, otherwise treated disrespectfully or or with physical violence. I'm just this is a process that we're going through, and I think even now, you know, in in, in modern American society, we're not fully there. Um, there's another book that I you know not directly associated to that, but recommended reading is um, Raising Cain. Raising Cain um, was written by two psychologists uh, who dealt with, uh, you know, the the emotional development of boys, and they uh, they show how, uh, you know, part of it was definitely is nature. Part of the the different behavior patterns of men is nature. There's no question, but part of it is also nurture because uh, we we tend to educate girls to be emotionally sensitive. And to educate boys to to uh, to be strong and to uh, overlook that, and and they need education because boys sometimes cannot understand. Uh, they don't have the same level of sen- this is not this is nature. They don't have the same level of uh, of sensitivity and the way that that uh, that women read faces and emotions. So in some cases, it's really the lack of their ability to understand what what is going on. Uh, in that book, in that in that book, Raising Cain, for example, they have uh, they have the story where they sit with a with a with a group of children, ten to twelve year olds, um, 
and they ask him, they're, they're, there was a case where they uh, verbally abused one of their friends, they were calling him names, etc., etc., and they and they interview them and say why why are you doing that to uh, to Paul let's say right and they say yeah because it's true it is what we said is true and his mother is this and that, whatever they go on back and forth and they say but but don't you think that it hurts him oh we all make jokes it doesn't hurt anyone uh, and they keep pressing and they say um, but what if you really hurt him would you stop and they say uh, yes like we don't want to hurt him so the the psychologist asks them. So how do you know that someone is hurt? How do you know that someone is emotionally hurt? And those boys are completely stumped. They have no idea. How, how do you tell that someone is emotionally hurt? And eventually someone is like, hesitantly says, uh, if they cry, wow, you know, this is <laughs> Eureka, right? He, he, they realize that this is the, uh, this is the case. So this is something that that uh, that men have to be edu- have to be educated to understand. So we, when we see all these stories, part of it, just like the story with Aguna, it's a problem of empathy. Where is the, that that uh, it's something that if it's not there naturally, people have to be educated for. And another book that deals with that, and I I'll mention it because I, I did workshops with that book, and the results were really. Uh, you know, predictable, but still amazing. Um, and that is a book that was written by Simon Baron Cohen, is the uh, the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, the famous Sasha uh, Borat. So his uh, his cousin Simon is a is a uh, is a research, researcher and is an expert on uh, on autism. And the book that he wrote is called The Essential Difference. The uh, the and his theory is that the extreme male brain, the expression of the extreme male brain is autism. And that's why it's more common among men than among, among boys than women, than among girls. It's just, he describes it, it's a, it's, it's, I think it's a must read to understand the way that our brains work differently. Um, and he says that everybody has a brain that is a certain mixture of the female and, uh, and male brain. Uh, but but you know we are on a scale, and the more you push you know to the towards the male brain, then you go first to Asperger's syndrome, and then and then autism, uh, and you know that many many uh, different uh, forms of autism are uh, manifested by the inability, especially in, in, in Asperger's syndrome is more it's more evident because people are still communicative and 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 intelligent and. And do everything, but they don't understand social norms. In some cases, it is uh, what is called dyspresophia, uh, not the inability to uh, to uh, to recognize faces and emotions and so on. Um, and so, at the at the end of the book, he has this very interesting test where there's only uh, there's a photo. There are thirty or forty photos of only the eyes. And uh, a little bit of the uh, the area around the eyes, and for each set of eyes, there's a multiple choice, and people are asked to tell what is the mood of that person: angry, perplexed, uh, thoughtful, etc. And the uh, and he says that usually women do much better in those tests than men, and and one of the workshops that I conducted. Um, 
couple were sitting, and I know that they had, they had, they had some problems between them. Both good people, but they, you know, they exploded on, on a regular basis, like old faithful, just like, you know. Um, so we're, we're sitting there, and they're doing the test, and the women were excited, and this man gets up, and he flies the papers over, and says, I cannot do it! He gets so upset. He really wanted to, but he just couldn't understand the faces. It's just unbelievable. So I'm saying have this in mind, that what we see here is, uh, it's not a sort of a deliberate attempt to put women down, but a sort of more um, a manifestation of the the natural dynamics between men and women in different societies. And I think that the Torah tried to, to change that tie, but it was lost in rabbinic period. And we'll see later on, uh, we are now still in the 12th century, but when we get in this section to the 16th century, we'll see an outlier, just like Rabbi Shmuel Archivolti from, from Italy, uh, we'll see another Italian rabbi from Sephardic descent, Rabbi Gedalia Ibn Yahya, who wrote a book all in you know, praising women and really pushing it to the extreme to show how women are superior to men. So there's, there's, there's hope, okay, there's remedy. Um, let's go back to this, this uh, statement about the Nida that is from Orzawa, uh, written by Rabbi Shaq of Vienna. It says that they cannot be touched and a woman cannot eat on the same table as her husband. The same verse from Psalm 128 that we uh, saw before. Your wife is like a vine at the corner or at the end of the house. And also they wrote, Anu mahmirin al we don't eat from her bowl, we don't eat from her leftovers. And they didn't write any reason for that, just we don't do that. And I heard that it's dangerous. If you eat it, you'll die. Um, and uh, in, in modern day orthodoxy, this has been legislated. What started as a um, esoteric... Uh, stringency of, of one rabbi, of one group, has become mainstream halakha. And I was in, uh, in a very embarrassing situation in, from my first years in yeshiva, with Nekolel, where I, uh, uh, I visited my friend who got married, and, and uh, at a certain point he says, his wife has some leftovers, I don't know, maybe it was something that was really uh, pricey, he didn't want to throw away, and he offered it to me, and I said, I'm not going to eat it, you eat it. And he's like, I cannot eat it. Like basically telling me that his wife is Nida, and that's why he cannot eat it, he wants me to eat it. And I was thinking to myself, you have, you have no sense of decency or, or privacy, like, why are you doing that? Uh, but it became sort of like halachic, you know, it's halacha, just the, the same thing as uh, asking you whether you, you said the Shema or you didn't say the Shema. Anyway, uh, forget my own. Uh, this, uh, I was felt very, very uncomfortable with all these uh, discussions. Um, and he also, they also wrote, "Anu mahmirin al You see, the men are strict. al We don't sit on the same seat that she is. Uh, she's on. And now you'll understand why, if you're trying to take a monichewut in Israel, a cab, they know men wouldn't sit on the same. Uh, car seat as you know in the back seat as as women why you have all these uh, dramas in the in the uh, um, on an airplane where a woman refuses to sit next to a man or a man refuses to sit next to a woman 
for fear that she's Nida and the Tumai is transferred to him. And all that is clearly written here as a Humrah. Anu Mahmirim al It's a strict halacha that is not really, uh, there's no basis. We don't sit where she sits, we don't touch her clothes. And we don't uh, take anything directly from their hand if not through an intermediary. And which is also very embarrassing, especially in family settings, when I'm, you know, with with the with Orthodox couples who are who accepted that as the norm, because this is how it is taught today, that a, a, a nida cannot give anything in hand to hand to the uh, to her husband, and they they say, oh, uh, let's say the baby is crying. And the husband says, okay, I'll take him. And then they look around because she cannot give him the baby. And they wait for someone to come and take the baby from her and give it to him. Right? Very awkward situation. Uh, everybody should know exactly what, you know, uh, what, what is her status. And he adds on, the, As much as we can be extreme and strict, we will and we'll keep away from her. And we give her, very generous, We give her special utensils and bowls and spoons and keys and sheets and pillows and, and, and cushions that she could use when she's impure. Um, now, that was... Um, it was common in in communities where, where, like I mentioned before, people live together. That women have the, had their own uh, courtyard, and they were synchronized their uh, their cycles, and they felt comfortable with that because that that that's that was their place, and they would cook for each other. Uh, but still, the way it is phrased here is is demeaning. We give her okay, yeah, take this, take like a prisoner. Take this and go to your corner. And that's very important because it has implications in halakha. Um, and whenever anyone will tell you within the Orthodox world that the reason the women cannot touch the Sefer Torah is because they are uh, they have the Tumah of Nida. Right? Have you heard this before? I'm sure you've heard this before. Some women took it upon themselves not to enter the synagogue and not to touch the sefer. Now, when he says sefer, <coughs> it could be referring to regular sefer, it could be referring to sefer Torah. But in any case, he says here, it's not the halacha, it's the decision of women, which is unfortunately part of the natural process. If women are brought up in that environment where they are being told that they were nida, they're impure, and they're dangerous, and they have to be kept away from people, so they, on their own accord, would say, oh, but I don't want to get go into the synagogue because I don't feel worthy to be there. Especially when the rabbis add, the rabbi adds here, v'yafehen osot. It is, it is, uh, uh, it is good that they do that. It's, 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 it's portable. So, um, and because of that, yesh nashim she'enan mitpalelot nida. And some women would not pray behind a nida. And that, by the way, did not catch in uh, in the Sephardic world. This be, and because, like, as I said, 
the uh, the influence, this rejection of the nida during uh, during the nida was mainly in uh, an influence of the German uh, culture. Um, so because of that, in uh, in Germany and later on in other Ashkenazi communities, women were not welcomed in the synagogue at all. Not behind the mechitza, not in Ezrat Nashim. Women were told that where their nida, they should not be in the shul. And the only allowance that they made for them, that when they had mercy for them, was during the holidays, they said, it's not nice to have these women waiting outside, we let them come into the synagogue. So this is an example of something that completely got out of hand. Um, and it continues here, it concludes, Klalo shel davar, kol ma sheyechol adam lehachmir benida, yachmir, v'tavo alav racha. Whatever, however, uh, Whatever you could do to be more strict in the halachot of nida, please do so. Go ahead, and you will be blessed. And one should not speak and talk unnecessarily to his wife as she nida. And it's it's fine to be away as far as possible from one's wife when she's nida. Because this will augment the love. And and the uh, the yearning for them to be together. So it ends with a like sort of a, of a positive on a positive note. But we see that in general, the uh, the attitude, and we have we see two Ashkenazi authors. One is Sefer Hasidim, Rabbi Da Hasid, that really goes into mythical uh, realms completely, and the other one, the Ozarua, which is a more serious halachic uh, work, that um, which. Uh, Basically, puts the puts women in prison for uh, half their life. They're in prison. They cannot be touched. They cannot inter uh, interact with the men. Um, and she she she's basically under the category of the untouchables, which is very uh, disturbing. But that that is how uh, the laws of Nida were understood then. And as I said, this was carried over to modern times. In modern times. This is this is the norm in the Orthodox community. However, there I know from people who, are, who call for counseling or others that a lot of young couples, especially young couples, uh, f- feel guilty because they cannot comply by all these extreme additions that were accumulated throughout the ages. Um, uh, okay, our next source, with the what we saw before was halacha. Um, and now we're reading a commentary in the Torah by Rabbi David Kimhi. He was born in Provence, in Narvon, but uh, his father, Rabbi Yosef Kimhi, fled Spain because of persecutions. So basically, it's a family, it's a Sephardic family um, known for his commentary in the Torah. And uh, and that is a commentary on. On Bereshit Bet Yudchet, the book of Bereshit, chapter two, verse eighteen, is pasuk lo tov hiyot adam levado. It is not good. Uh, it is not good for men to be alone. Let me make him uh, a helpmate. Ezer kenegdo. But the word Ezer kenegdo is mentioned as uh, a helpmate. Against him, that means really face to face, sort of. But um, that's how it's written. So 
Here is what, what Radak says. Here's a short uh, translation. I'll read the full text in Hebrew. The, the commandment not to eat from the tree was given to Adam. And once the woman was brought to Adam, he told her the, of the commandment not to eat from the fruit. So he, she accepted what he told him, what he told her, because she was also knowledgeable and she understood that she was created by God. Uh, why he has to mention kibat daataita? What would we think that she was not intelligible? Uh, maybe, maybe it's a response to to Christianity to some Christian commentators who who doubted the uh, the status of of the woman. And God would speak to them through the uh, the special uh, intelligence that He gave them, which was uh, superior to the rest of the animals. However, He goes on to say, All other species were created male and female, but man was created alone. And now that is his interpretation. Remember that in the first chapter of Bereshit, we read that uh, in verse 26, God created men and women and called them Adam. So there was one one creature, entity, or, or uh, species that's called mankind that was created simultaneously. That's another issue of why the second chapter deviates from the storyline of the first chapter. Um, in 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 a very brief uh, way, I'll say that I uh, understand that as the first chapter in the, in, in the footsteps of Rabbi Kaplan and others um, that the first chapter describes the ideal world, the world of God that never existed, and in that world, men and women are equal. And the second chapter represents the world of men where we live today and where men thinks that the woman is just a helpmate, an afterthought who's there to serve him. However, Radak, Rabbi David Kimhi, looks at this text uh, as, the, as the official text. So as many commentators did, they say we have a contradiction before, between the first chapter and the second chapter. So what are we going to do? We assume that the first chapter is... Uh, the the brief or the the summary of uh, uh, of events and the second chapter opens them up. So he says, They were all created male and female except for men. That was for the benefit of men and for his honor. Why? Just as he is distinct from the rest of the animals both in matter and in form, in matter that the matter that he is created from, and the form which was given to that matter. In the rest of, of the species, the male has no advantage over the female. And that is an interesting statement. I don't know what he bases it on. We know that... Uh, 
in the rest of the species that back in the day, probably they were not familiar with all of those that we are familiar with today. There are still millions to be discovered. Um, there's always an advantage to one species over the other. It could be the male over the female, or vice versa, but there's never uh, physical equality. However, it says that Adam has a yitaron on his body to remove it and to remove it the men, and here it is a, a interchangeable Adam, either Adam, the first Adam, or man in general. He has an advantage over his female. It doesn't even say here the the, the wife over the female. To to govern over her and to command her as he wishes, because she is one of his organs. So basically, he is uh, he takes the story of the creation of the woman from the rib to say that the woman is uh, only an external extension of the man's body. And since she is his organ, and one cannot imagine the body walking in one direction and the hand walking in another direction, the woman is completely submissive and subjugated to the man. Just as all the members of the body, all the organs, must follow the uh, the will of the uh, uh, the man, the person to go with him. So also the woman, vis-à-vis the man, is but an organ that must follow him wherever he goes. And because man is the uh, foundation of creation or the essence of creation, because he was created first, and the uh, and the woman is a secondary, and she was created from him. Men is more powerful in all aspects than the woman. And also the intelligence or the power of logic is more powerful for him than it is for a woman. So uh, this this statement clearly displays an um, understanding of this hierarchy of superiority for men over women. Um, and he based in the Pasuk, the Torah doesn't say there, really in, in Genesis 2.18, that... Uh, that uh, the man is superior to to the woman, but uh, Radak is able to deduce it from uh, you know his understanding of the psukim. Um, from here we'll go to, uh, and that that is by the way a source if you want to see um, the uh, the different understanding of rabbis at the time. This is one of the one of the one of the verses, one of the sources that is worth to conduct research, to compare the different commentators. I had others, but I didn't bring all of them here. Um, now we go to Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, the famous Ramban Nachman, who was born and lived most of his life in his, in Spain, but eventually decided to migrate to, to uh, Eretz Israel. Um, so he's late 12th century, early 13th century, He's a just interesting character in terms of the of the uh, of his personal life and public life. Uh, Ramban is Spanish by origin, so he's a Sephardi Jew. 
there is a debate, though, regarding his uh, uh, his Torah and his heritage, whether it's Sephardic or Ashkenazi. Uh, there is uh, one opinion of uh, Professor Jose Faul um, that Ramban is Ashkenazi, even though it's, like I said, Sephardic by origin. And that is because his commentary on the Talmud uh, follows in the footsteps of the Tosafot, the famous commentators of the Talmud, who were the grandchildren of Rashi. And Ramban adopted their mythology. Um, but it's hard to say that because uh, one of the, one of the uh, salient features of Ramban, which is very common to, uh, to scholars of his time in, uh, in Spain, is that he's a multifaceted is a multifaceted uh, author. He writes about Kabbalah, he writes commentary to the Torah, he writes morals and ethics, he writes books of halakha, commentary to the Talmud. He's, he's, uh, he's a, a prolific author and uh, uh, multidisciplinary. He's not, he's not uh, adhering to one, uh, one discipline only. He was also a community leader. He represented the Jews in the famous uh, disputations against the uh, um, against the convert uh, Petro Petro Alfonsi, and uh, in front of the of the king in Barcelona. And he won the debate, and probably that was the reason that he had to to flee the country. Um, Ramban's commentary on the Torah is interesting because it's the first commentary that comes with an introduction explaining what is an intent, what is his intention, and also for each uh, one of the Homashim of the Torah, he has a mini-introduction. The commentary itself is uh, uh, sometimes moving on four different planes where Ramban would say, this is the commentary, this is, he would say, al according to the truth, which means Kabbalah. He would say, Al-Derech Hapshat, which is the, in, according to the context of the text in the Pasuk, uh, he would say, uh, the were called the Midrash by the rabbis, and he would dispute with Rashi. So he, he, uh, he used many uh, different levels of interpretation in his commentary. Sometimes when you read one piece from the beginning to end, he presents four different possibilities. Um, and here in uh, in his commentary to Vaikra to Leviticus eighteen nineteen, where the Torah speaks about the concept of the Tumah of Nida, the Tumah of uh, uh, of Zava, which I, we mentioned before, are completely different. Nida is a is a natural process, and Zava is an uh, uh, extreme situation, sexually transmitted, transmitted diseases. Where the Torah wants to quarantine this uh, uh, the zava to uh, to make sure that no one no one else gets infected, but when the Ramban speaks of the nida, he says things that remind us the uh, the ideology of the Ashkenazi rabbis Rabbi Yitzchak of Vienna, and that is probably one example where uh, Professor Far would say, you see, there he had Ashkenazi influence. So what he says um, here is the. Uh, uh, a short translation. Kianida bit hilat zova im tabit bemara shel barzel habahir vetarich lirodba yirau bemara tipot adumot ketipot dam. It says when the, uh, uh, the cycle of menstruation just starts for the nida, if she looks at a mirror made of clear metal, 
those were the mirrors of the day, no, not glass, they were polished metal. If she looks at it and she keeps gazing at it, you will see on the mirror uh, red drops of, that look like blood. Because that uh, natural negative element in her now as a nida would, uh, would breed this repugnant sight and the uh, negative air will cling to the mirror. And that is another uh, amazing uh, or perplexing thing, just like I said before about Sefer Hasidim, that the majority of its writing is along these uh, fantastic worlds. It is amazing to see someone like Ramban, who was otherwise very logical, quoting something like that, which was would be easily proven with an experiment, but nobody ever bothered to conduct the... Uh, the the experiment for empirical evidence, but he add, he adds more. She is like an asp that could kill only by looking at a person. That's another myth. People believe that the certain types of snakes would kill you if you just look at them. And if that is the kind of damage that she could cause, even more so, she will cause a damage to anyone who's sleeping with her because her body and her thought will cling to his body and his thought and will, will cause him damage. And he goes on to say, says, why does the Torah and the Tanakh always, the, sorry, the Torah and the Tanakh always mention the concept of Nida alongside impurity, because just like a dead animal or a man who is uh, who has contracted leprosy, from whom the uh, Tum'ah is emitted for their, from their own body, that's also Tum'ah Nida. What he's trying to say is that it's not Tum'ah that she contracted from an outside source, but it's Tum'ah that uh, originated from her body. So those are, of course, very, very harsh words. Um... But he takes it into a mystical uh, realm. He says, They said, this is a, uh, like a pool of water that has been uh, contaminated. And one should not drink from it water which is not, which is not potable and it could harm a person tremendously. And she is forbidden to be with the holy stock with the children of Israel uh, during the times of, of her Tumah until she dips in water. Because if, if she does that, she will be Tahor in Mahshava as well and she will be completely clean. Um, so here, Rambam combines his mystical uh, worldview with with the influence of the Ashkenazi literature in terms of Nida. And he says that uh, her level of Tum'ah is severe because she emits Tum'ah from her own body. But this does not hold ground in terms of Halakha because the uh, most severe uh, type of impurity in Halakha is Tum'at Met, that of touching a dead body. And there's not one person in the world today who did not either touch a dead body himself, or touch someone who touched 
a dead body before, and that is the equal, uh, the same level of uh, impurity. So just, you know, if we recall that uh, uh, that group of women who decided not to go to the Bet Knesset and not to tie the Sefer Torah because of impurity, it doesn't stand the test of Halakha, because if we were concerned about impurity when touching the Sefer Torah, all men would be forbidden because we are all Tameh, we all contracted in one point of our life the Tumah of touching a dead body or someone who did uh, touch a dead body. I mean, basically, basically, if you, you shake uh, hands with a doctor, you've already Tumimit because that doctor, when he went to medical school, had to do autopsies and he became Tumimit. Now, when you, when you shake his hand, uh, it, it, um, it is transferred to you as well. I don't want to scare people to go right now from now on with the anti-impurity sterile gloves. Uh, just saying that was that was the mentality of the time. But but but, but ends up here saying that uh, that thing about the nida. Yes. Okay. Remember the example you gave of the baby that the wife, while menstruating, can't give it to the right. husband directly, and so she gave. They wait until somebody comes into the room and they pass the baby through him. And if that someone is a man, why is it okay for that someone to touch the baby and take it from her and not for the husband? Oh, because the the, the there was no there was no concern that an, uh, another man. But the, the the fear is that this kind of touch, even though it's not affectionate, but it. Uh, some, I mean, some commentators saw that the fact that they move, you know, they give one, you know, uh, an object from one hand to another. Uh, is in itself affectionate. Others say, others said, no, we're afraid that when she gives it to him, he will touch her, etc. So, and that, so what is the problem? That will lead to more affectionate touching and that will lead to uh, uh, relationships, right? Or intercourse. So that fear doesn't exist with the foreign men. They, they were not afraid that they're going to cross that line. Our next stop is Rabbi Haq Arama. Some say Arame, we don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. But I say Arama, uh, who was born in Spain, then moved to Portugal and, and ended up in Italy. Uh, he, he died shortly after the expulsion from Spain in 1494. Um, and he's famous for his book, Akedat Yitzhak on the Torah, which more than a commentary, it is, uh, it is also a work of philosophy. Um, here, uh, also, by the same pasuk, by the same verse of uh, Genesis 2.12 It is not good for men to be alone. He says this. So uh, God in his wisdom added a special element to the connection between humans or in, in the if I translate literally says God did not want the intimate relationship between men and women to be a matter of uh, of, of uh, carnal relationships only, that it's only to yahasamini, uh, it's to uh, preserve the species. That's yahasamini to to make sure that they that the uh, they have children that it continues. Aval yahas ishiyi meyuhad. That is interesting for Hebrew speakers because ishi is a very right. It's a very modern uh, modern word, right? Uh, and that's where that's probably one of the first places where you could see it. Like they made, um, they invented the word, maybe from the Arabic, but it's the difference between miniyi that has to do with the species in general, miniyi, 
an ishii that has to do with the person, with the individual. And from that way, we have the word ishi. And what is this personal uh, connection? So what God wanted to give mankind is a uh, is something which is unique to the individual. So it's not about personal versus uh, or intimate versus uh, carnal, but rather individual versus uh, um, generic for the whole species. So. Uh, and we know that, that humans, I mean, we know that uh, there are certain other animals that have very strong personal relationship between between spouses, but in human society, it's very evident across all, uh, uh, you know, the whole world. And what is that? Something that will strengthen their love and their companionship. To be aided by each other in all of their matters, complete and wholesome uh, help and support as they deserve. So when God took one of the ribs to make the, the woman from it, As I explained earlier, God was able to carry out now his, his, his mission and to achieve his goal by creating the woman from the rib. Why? Because they had to cling to each other. Uh, he uses the words of the verse later on, a man should cling to his wife. Because they need to cling to each other, but he doesn't see it as one-sided. He sees it as a, as, a, as a mutual thing. They have to be, uh, uh, to cling to each other. And they have to be bonded to each other by love and separated from other uh, from other people, meaning that should be unique to them only. God's wisdom was to make it even stronger for them by creating them one from another to make them one object, one entity that will never separate. Because they are so close to each other, the the love and companionship between them will be augmented. So this is a beautiful statement of Rabbi Tzhak Arama, where he uh, he sees in a more much more emotional, sensitive way the relationship between men and and women. He says that God made sure that we have a closer and more intimate relationships than uh, animals have between the uh, uh, the male and the female of the species. So, okay. Uh, in also in his commentary to uh, to Bereshit, he says the following. Um, over there, he speaks about uh, the, the discrimination by the Creator. Can we can we say that when God created mankind? He discriminated against us by creating some people uh, belonging to this nation, some to the other nation, and of course with the association of giving the Torah. And he says this, Here's the translation. Even when you look at one nation, 
within this nation there will be discrimination, which we could turn to God and claim, why did you do that? Why did you create some as such and others as uh, a different thing? What is it? Some of the souls that God sends to this world become the souls of males. And what is it about males? They have control over their spirit, over their uh, self, and all that belongs to them. Uh, so the, the, this is a, an argument that has two, not an argument, a description that has two elements. One is he looks at the superiority of, he thinks that men are superior by being stronger, by being more in control, etc. But he says that what that provides them with is the ability to realize their potential. Whereas women, women are uh, weaker or less capable in all the important uh, issues, maybe it means it's learning or uh, carrying out uh, tasks. And that is combined, that is coupled with They are subjugated and uh, almost enslaved to the constant service and work for someone else, which in turn, cause them to not be able to achieve uh, perfection and success. And he says, I believe that this is the reason that the Torah exempts them from mitzvot aseh, which depend on time. Now, uh, on one hand, we already see, we, we uh, read in the previous paragraph his understanding of the importance of intimacy and love and connection. But now, we see that he speaks of man as superior However, <clears throat> I think that the uh, the uh, the statement here, the insight that he provides, is very important because that um, I think that is that is the process that the feminist movement went through uh, in modern times because the original um, the original uh, uh, women's lib movement, or at least early feminism, the idea was we, women want to do everything that men do. I mean, if you look at the kibbutzim in Israel, for example, the idea of equality, the idea of liberation was that uh, the the work would be divided between all. If if you have to work in what is called falha, you have to work in the field, men and women. You have to work in the in the cow pen and, and, and uh, take care of the cows. Men and women, we're not we're not going to assign traditional works for men and traditional works for women. Um, and the same thing was, uh, you know, happened in America. Women want to be. Uh, uh, it's important that a woman would be a truck driver or a riveter, etc. Um, I'm not saying that it's not that it's, it shouldn't happen, but the the ideal should not have been let's let's make sure that the woman would take upon herself any work that the men could do but rather what uh, Rabbi Shach Arama says here they have the ability to seek perfection and to achieve it to realize their potential this I believe is the sense of equality that 
everyone has the option to realize their potential, their dreams, and not to be told, because you're a woman, you cannot do that. Because you're, uh, and, and, and that is still an acute problem, because even though technically uh, employers should hire men or women equally, we know that the, uh, uh, the pay for, uh, for the same position is still higher for men than for women. And um, I think but the bigger problem is that for a woman who wants to, uh, to lead a normal family life, it will become very difficult to have, uh, to have a normal and, uh, and steady job. Uh, there's a book... I think the name of the author is Sylvia Van Hewlett, uh, and and uh, the name of her book is Life Worth. You know, I don't know when it was translated. I know the book is Hayim Shavim Pahot, Life Which Are Worth Less. Uh, maybe the, you know, a play word, a wordplay on uh, on worthless life, and she describes her struggle, uh, you know, in the academia and later on in the uh, in the corporate world to be a working uh, a working woman and a mother, and it was almost impossible. and And this is like seventies, uh, eighties. Um, that is that is where she had a problem. She says, "I the 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 market and the workforce is not built in a way to accommodate." Women who want to have a family and to want to, and want to have children. So uh, this, I think, in the sense is yes, women should be able to do to take on themselves any any job that they want to do. But the 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 core is this um, that everybody should be able to realize uh, their potential. But Rabbi uh, Arama is, I think, he's 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 walking the line. He's in between that. Uh, that worldview that uh, that women that men are superior to women, and the understanding that there's there's special character traits in women. So maybe he's he uh, he's not looking categorically at all women as uh, as weaker or not knowledgeable, and he does feel uh, the importance of intimacy, and he he is more empathic than other authors that we've seen, and here. Um, in uh, chapter twenty-two, or, or gate twenty-two, because the book is divided into gates of uh, of Genesis, he writes the following. And that will be the last, uh, I think, the last paragraph that we read today, and then we open discussion. Uh, maybe one more. Uh, he says this: This is uh, based on a verse in Mishlei in Eshet Ha'il. She opened her mouth with wisdom, and the the Torah of loving kindness is on her tongue. By saying that, the author, Shalomo, excluded the woman of valor from the group of the talkative women. She keeps quiet constantly, and when she talks, she measures her words. And that's a great achievement, that's a great character trait. So that, that is the meaning of uh, she opened her, her mouth with wisdom. And what she speaks of usually is ideas of loving kindness. 
כדת הנשים הצדקניות, as righteous women do, מצד שהן תמיד מצויות בבית, תמיד להתנהג בה. Because they're always home and they can always follow that mitzvah. Now this uh, is, uh, is a reference to a story in the Talmud about, um, about a rabbi who used, to give, uh, who used to give charity to the poor in hiding. I Meaning every day he would uh, go and slide money under the doors of the poor and, uh, and uh, the same person. And the, the receiver... At one point, the recipient at one point uh, decided, he said, I want to know who is my benefactor, who is the person who gives me money. So he, was, he, he hid, he waited for the money to, to be pushed under the door, and when that happened, he opened the door and ran after the rabbi, I think that was of Ketina, and because he wanted to see who is that man. The rabbi was at that time with his wife, so they both escaped and they entered a house where the... Uh, The, the, the fireplace was still hot. They just uh, cleaned the coals out. And they decided to go and hide in the oven, in that, or in the fireplace. It was very hot. And the, the man, the, the wife told her husband, she says, put, you know, stand on my feet, because I don't feel the heat. I'm not burning. And he did that. And then when, she, when they left, and when the, that poor man went away, and they were able to get out of their hiding place, He asked her, he said, how is it possible that you didn't feel the heat? And I did. And she answered, it is because when, uh, when I give charity, my giving is immediate. When you give charity, a poor person comes to your study or to the study hall and you give him money. And with that money, he has to go and buy food. But when a poor man comes to me, I give, them, uh, I give him uh, made food ready to eat. And uh, he is satisfied right away. So therefore, my mitzvah was greater than yours, and it protected me from burning my feet. So this is an interesting midrash. I mean, the, 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 obviously, uh, either the story did not happen as it is told, or she had some kind of, a, of a body control, you know, mind-body control, like being able to walk over burning coals. But the message is interesting. They go and they hide in the place which is used to make food and which emits heat. She could take the heat, he cannot take the heat. It's like saying that the woman has the emotional warmth that a man lacks, that her giving is, is warm, is alive, is something that is palpable and the, the, the poor person can eat right away, whereas his giving is cold and detached with money. Money is not... Uh, Money is transferred from hand to hand. It is not associated with the person who made it or the person who owned it. But food is associated with the owner when, when you eat homemade food. So this is the story that he refers to when, when he says, Remisachem tamim etziot babayit. The story is in Masechet Bava Matziah, page 85, uh, side 1. And where is it? For some reason, doesn't move. Anyway, this is here is the story uh, in at the, at the at the bottom of uh, page eighty five in Masechet uh, That's the source. So um, here, Shagatanu. Uh, uh, 
Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, so this is this is something that that uh, that uh, Rabbi Itzhak Arama refers to, and and he speaks about that uh, ability of the woman to give tzedakah, to charity, which which comes from a personal place of warmth and love and compassion. Um, and now his conclusion here is extremely interesting. Velo al zot amru hamelamed lebitot Torah ki ilu tiflut. And it is not regarding that woman that it was said that one who teaches her Zodah Torah teaches her vanity. Remember that that was when we, we spoke about scholars and scholarship and we saw that in the, uh, uh, in, in the ruling of Maimonides and then uh, again in the book of Rabbi Arkavolti that this, this, this is really a, a, a bothersome uh, statement and the Akedat Yitzhak, Yerub Yitzhak Arama, sort of saying what Rabbi Shemuel Arkevolti says, that the the statement, one should not teach his daughter Torah, is not sweeping. It doesn't apply to everyone. It it means that do not teach indiscriminately because you don't know how your child is going to grow. Yes, of course, there was obvious that originally it wasn't a, a discriminatory statement, but later sages, after Maimonides, Maimonides took it literally... But the, the later sages were trying to take it, some of them um, uh, twisted. So Akedat Yitzhak is the first to do that by saying they're uh, a special woman like that who is learned, who knows what to say and when to say as in his, as, and is engaged in uh, loving kindness. She needs the Torah for that. And she, if she studied Torah, she did not study uh, anything in vain. It, it was done for a purpose. So we sort of redeems that, uh, that statement. Um, I think we'll stop here for today. Tomorrow we'll continue with uh, with Avar Banel and some of the Italian rabbis. And after Rabbi Al-Sheikh, we'll finally get to Rabbi Gedalia Ibn Yahya, who uh, takes a different direction and speaks of women's superiority. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.